0: Welcome to TCN Talks. I'm your host, Chris Como, and the goal of our podcast is 15 to 20 minutes of relevant need to know to help you in your role as a hospice and palliative care and serious illness leader and team member at all levels of the organization. So our goal is concise and relevant need to know to help you in your role. And the bookend of our podcast is always something to make you think deeper about life or about our topic or about both. So our guest today, who I'm really excited about, is Mark Cohen. He's the publisher and editor of Hospice News Today, and he's a principal of Cohen Fife Communications. Mark, welcome. Hey, Chris. Thanks. It's Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you, Mark. So first off, just tell our listeners, what do they need to know about you and also Hospice News Today?
1: Well, Hospice News Today is an email-only, subscriber-only daily briefing, 365 days a year, that lands in your email inbox generally before 8 a.m. Eastern time every day. Uh, which encapsulates and abstracts and and covers the news, not just directly affecting hospice and Mm -hmm. hospice providers, but the broader post-acute environment. It's intended to be a daily environmental scan for anybody in the hospice world who touches the external public. Um, And it's uh, it's a passion of mine, uh, media monitoring. I've been doing it my whole career, and um, it's great to be able to, to meld the media monitoring with the uh, hospice passion as well.
0: Well, and you were sharing some pretty cool stories, just a little bit more about your background work. You've been in some fascinating places. Um, and then even what, what did you originally study? Mm-hmm. Well, I
1: was—I uh, always intended to, uh, to be a journalism major. I knew that halfway through high school and I grew up in New Jersey and uh, wanted to go as far away from New Jersey as I could afford to go, which Wasn't very far, I ended up at the University of Iowa uh, and their excellent journalism program and their excellent daily newspaper, uh, the Daily Island. Uh, This is mid seventies. And it was just a great piece of luck because 1976, 75, 76 was the first year that the Iowa democratic caucuses were on uh, the political radar screen. Uh, and um, I ended up being the head of political coverage for the Daily Island. when I had interviews with um, many of the Democratic candidates as they came through Eastern Iowa. I had two interviews uh, with Jimmy Carter, uh, one in November, one in December of 75, and after the second interview, he actually asked me to go to work for him, um, and he wasn't pulling my leg. He was dead serious, so uh, instead of going back to school in January of 76, ended up going to Atlanta and ended up uh, in the Florida primary campaign uh, in 76 and ended up um, in the White House on Inauguration Day in 1977. I was the youngest person on the 380-person um, uh, White House staff. I was a little over 20 years old. And my job, interesting, interestingly enough, as a journalism student, I was put in the press office and my job was to work on the six-person uh, White House news summary. So something actually that was started uh, during the Nixon years. and uh, Ford continued, Carter continued, everybody has continued it. But our job was to monitor uh, local media from all around the country, uh, broadcast and uh, print. Um, and so it was a great education for me. I was a journalism student. I was reading 25 daily newspapers in states west of the Mississippi every day um, in my job and going to school at night. Just uh, um, gave me a great background in in um, in how to read the media and how to monitor the media, and that's carried me through my whole career in public relations and marketing and healthcare.
0: Well, well, that takes us exactly where we are today, Mark, and why I thought you make such a good guest. Um, when I grew up, Walter Cronkite was the most trusted name personality a uh, news source anywhere. In fact, I just love the way he ended every, and that's the way it is. <laughs> and so um, I remember I was at a, at the time as a national hospice Work Group meeting and we had met with some key attorneys at Morgan Lewis. And I remember she was asking us some tough questions about, do you guys know these things are coming? And then almost out of frustration, she looked at us and says, don't you people read modern healthcare? And I added to my to-do list, start reading modern healthcare. And not too long after that is when your hospice news today came along. And those two sources, modern healthcare for me from a broader healthcare perspective, but then your hospice news today have to me been been required reading every day. I feel like you are the most trusted news source in the hospice industry. And most people didn't even know that was your background. So I think you've got a very interesting perspective. And so given your catbird seat, and being that trusted source, what do you see are the top hot issues, um, things that are rising to the top? And <laughs> you get up pretty early every morning to produce the hospice news today. Yep. Um,
1: well, you know, I appreciate your, your comment about modern healthcare because my first healthcare job was being chief spokesperson for Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. This was in 1991, I had zero healthcare background. And all of a sudden I was working for the second largest, second busiest hospital in the United States. Um, and so I latched on to modern healthcare as, as, as my initial uh, guide map, uh, if you will, to, uh, to try and get smart as quickly as I could on all the issues uh, that we were facing. Um, you know, in, in, on the public relations side of me, uh, you can't do crisis communications uh, if you're not monitoring and scanning the environment. And the environment is always changing. So, you know, today, uh, the hot issues, not just in hospice, but in all of health care, are uh, medical marijuana, medical aid and dying. Those two particularly because this legislative season in the states so the, the states that are dealing with those issues, legislators are um, writing bills and committee hearings are being held just this week, as a matter of fact. So those two issues always pop up in the first quarter of the year. Um, private equity and its interest in rolling up uh, providers in the hospital sector and, that, and uh, mergers and acquisition activity in general. Um, lots of reports have come out in the last couple of weeks, several of them. Let's say that um, uh, 2021, to everyone's surprise, um, given the pandemic, was the most active year ever uh, for mergers and acquisitions across the healthcare sector, uh, not just hospice. Um, uh, Unionization, because of the the stress on workers, uh, unionization is a huge issue on the hospital side, and we in the hospice field have to be aware of that. And have to know that that's going on because there have been veganization efforts um, uh, in scattered places in the, uh, in the hospice uh, community. Um, certificate of need, again, the legislatures are in, so certificate of need is coming up uh, in those states that still have certificate of need laws. Um, and something that hasn't been too hot right now, but it just sort of bubbles under the surface. And I think Hospices are, um, are are delinquent if they're not following this issue. Is legislative and state legislative and congressional scrutiny of not-for-profits. Um, this is this mm-hmm. is something that popped up in the mid-2000s uh, when um, Iowa Senator um, Chuck Grassley was um, the ranking minority member on the Senate Finance Committee, and his. Chairman Max Baucus of um, Montana, they had a good relationship, and Grassley wanted to run this issue with this issue, and Baucus gave them all the freedom uh, to do that, and uh, the issue has not died down. It's just not on the front pages, but it's um, it's a serious issue out there uh, for folks, and a lot of people think, well, it's, it's not in my neighborhood, so I shouldn't worry about it. That's exactly the wrong way
0: to deal with issues like that. So let me kind of repeat them, list them in a, um like a bullet points mark, but then I want to ask you a question about how you formulate the list or how you formulated it. Um, but what I heard was um, medical, medical marijuana, medical aid and dying, private equity, MA activity, congressional scrutiny of nonprofits, and then certificate of need. Um, and I think you and I had, when we had talked prior, you even said unionization. So. Mark, you just steal all these resources. Do you see like a, a gaining momentum that allows you to say these are just kind of talk about how did you come up with the list? Absolutely. Um, you know,
1: a lot of people think that um, media monitoring means setting up a, a search in Google for hospice and maybe setting up a search in Google alerts for palliative care or end of life care. And that's all you need to do. And That is such an infinitesimal fraction of what I do. Um, I have um, about a hundred Google alerts that run twice a day. Um, I have 80 alerts that run on a proprietary news database called Nexus, which has actually been around since 1980. Um, I was the first ever healthcare person to have a Nexus account when I landed at Jackson Memorial Hospital in 1991. First ever in Florida. Um, and that's generally the domain of, uh, at that, that time, of law firms and now law firms and, and um, political, camp- political campaigns and uh, and political consultants. Um, I subscribe to, I get five daily newspapers still delivered to my front door, uh, real print newspapers. I have digital subscriptions to about 10 more newspapers and uh, about a dozen or so magazines. And I subscribe to... Literally about 100 um, daily news briefings, newspaper newsletters, um, et cetera. So I'm seeing stuff from every state uh, in the country, every region of the country, not just trade press, but general press. Um, And you just get a sense of the pattern of of things. You know, it's ironic that um, um, there was a story um, a couple days ago about. um, certificate of need in, I think it was the Carolinas. And then today there's a story in the Nashville, Tennessean about certificate of need, you know, groups latch on to these issues. Uh, certificate of need is something that's promoted by the various libertarian think tanks uh, around the country. If you don't think that's important, um, you know, they're the same folks who put right, uh, right to try legislation uh, through about three dozen states and then ultimately uh, at the federal level. And you could see right to, right to Try is a great example of that. It started in a couple of very conservative states. It was driven by the Goldwater Institute um, out of Arizona. Some other libertarian think tanks picked it up um, and pretty soon it became an issue that um, as much as the medical establishment, the medical ethicists said, this is total garbage, it's meaningless, it's powerless. Um, these bills were passing state legislatures with 85 90% um, approval, um, bipartisan approval, because it, it, just, it just developed a steam of uh, uh, a, uh, a momentum of its own. that it couldn't be stopped by a reasonable legislator trying to discuss the facts.
0: Mark, how do you also determine kind of the leading edge things? And so i one hand, I'm not surprised, about what you said, these are the key ones, but it's because I read your newsletter. So I'm informed, but how do you determine like, you know, this is like maybe a very leading indicator that you're owning the responsibility of, Hey, I think leaders in the industry need to be aware of this.
1: Well, I think a lot of that is just based on experience. Um, when I was in um, doing hospital public relations and marketing, there's a very simple rule. If you wanted to know what was going to hit your hospital in Florida or North Carolina, you needed to know what was going on in California. And if you were concerned about what was happening in managed care, you needed to know what was going on on the entire West Coast and in Minnesota. Um, and, you know, that's still true today on a lot of issues. Um, medical aid in dying, um, or physician-assisted suicide, Depending on your preference, uh, uh, unionization issues and um, and unions harping on um, uh, working conditions, not pay, is their primary issue. Um, you know, you that that's been an issue in California since I got into hospitals in the early '90s, and, it has, and the pandemic has just brought that back um, to the floor. Some of these issues, like um, uh, some of the issues about how to respond to um, uh, for profit, not for profit controversy, they sometimes ebb and flow or cycle back. Um, the best example of that is in the mid 90s when Tenet and Columbia HCA were going around buying up not for profit hospitals. Uh, the American Hospital Association recommended to hospitals that uh, you need to tell your community benefits story. Um, and so you had a flurry of hospitals that published community benefit reports for a year or two. And then it sort of died down and they fired the staff in the PR department who was responsible for that. Um, and then in the mid 2000s, Chuck Grassley started asking questions about executive compensation and private airplanes and overseas investments uh, by large not-for-profit hospital systems. And the issue came back again. So again, there were a couple of... Mm-hmm benefits reports uh, published, and now there's a greater focus on tax-exempt status of not-for-profits. Are they fulfilling their mission, Uh, partly because um, Obamacare meant that there are that many fewer charity care cases um, for hospitals, so back in the news. So again, you've got, you know, some players that are are focusing on this again, and you're starting to see some hospices Focus on uh, doing a better job of communicating their community benefit because we have a case now in the hospice sector that's a couple years old of a large legacy not for profit hospice losing its tax accident status um, because it was sued by a local government authority. So it can happen here and you need to know about that sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, where was yeah. that, Mark? I remember.
1: That was uh, Journey Care, which of course is now for profit or will yep. be sued. Uh, and the issue will be moved. But it's an interesting case because Journey Care had a two building campus and the city of Barrington, Illinois, sued to, to remove the um, the tax exempt status. And one building was an administrative building uh, where staff were housed and, you know, where they did grief from bereavement work and stuff like that. The other building was an inpatient center. The judge ruled that, well, your inpatient center, you're doing no charity care there. Everybody is Medicare uh, or TRICARE or Medicaid or private insurance. There's no charity care going on in your inpatient building. In your administrative building, you're doing grief and bereavement counseling and other community education things with the community. So I see a charitable mission actually in your administrative building, but um, but your patient care building uh uh-uh, uh, you're losing your tax status. It's still an appeal, um, mm-hmm. but you know it's a real. You know it sort of defies logic. The yep. patient we're building would be considered the profitable, the for profit enterprise, and the, uh, yeah.
0: You're you're raising my blood pressure just describing yeah. what you're describing and the logic.
1: Right. Well, you know, it, it just means that every not for profit hospice needs to do a better job of telling its community benefit story, and frankly, it means that every for-profit hospice needs to get out in front on that issue too and talk about what they do that goes above and beyond uh, the basics uh, as required by the conditions of participation. Because most of them do have some kind of a story to tell, it just costs money to tell that story. So a lot of them aren't interested in telling that story.
0: Mark, how good are you with, uh... Predicting and prophecy. I think just I become more and more fascinated about your perspective, and also then hearing about your background and what you're doing with the Hospice News Today. Do you get into editorial opinion and other parts of your life? Of course, I don't see it in the Hospice News Today,
1: but I, I think you've
0: I, got a very good perspective. Well, you do see it
1: in Hospice News Today when I slap both for-profit and not-for-profit providers um, on the wrist for referring to hospices in industry. Um, you know, that's something that I've, I've had that fight all the way up the chain of command to the national hospice and palliative care organization. Um, when I was in hospitals in the early nineties, the American hospital association did a three-year comprehensive, uh, public opinion study, both quantitative and qualitative data, um, looking at the reputation of hospital Uh, broadly. They they did a minimum of eight to 10 states every year for three years. They ended up, I think, in 35 states. They did both thousand-person telephone surveys and in-person focus groups in every state. Um, And the big headline that came out of that uh, study was that the most trusted person in healthcare is not your physician, it's your nurse. Um, Hmm. But the other headline that came out of that for the AHA was that the the most trusted symbol of healthcare, most important um, uh, brand um, symbol for hospitals is that blue H on the interstate highway that says to consumers, if you get off the highway here and follow this sign, you will end up someplace where people will care about you and will take care of you if you are in distress. And from that, the AHA said, we cannot talk about hospitals as an industry because that runs counter to what that little blue sign says. So the AHA put down an edict that said, whether you're for-profit or not-for-profit, we are a hospital field, we are a hospital sector, uh, but we are never the hospital industry. And they were aggressive uh, in enforcing that. If, if you, instead of being the CEO of a uh, North Carolina uh, uh, community of hospices, were the CEO of a hospital in North Carolina and you talked to your local newspaper and referred to the hospital industry, the AHA would see that clip and depending on how high up the food chain you were, you would either get a call from the head of public affairs in the Washington office or the head of the AHA in Chicago who would tell you, what about the last two years of communications about hospitals not being an industry, don't you understand? Um, And at that same time, the hospice field Stopped calling itself the hospice movement and the hospice community, and started referring to itself as the hospice industry because they thought that they had to be an industry to be able to sit at the adult table uh, when people were giving up uh, the Medicare dollars. So it was just it was just frustrating to watch that at the, at the one time that the hospital field was pivoting, the hospice community pivoted in the wrong direction, and. Um, it's wow. just a mistake. Nobody wants their grandmother. I mean, who here wants their grandmother to be cared for by the hospice industry? Right. When she's got six months or less to live. Um, so I think regardless of, of uh, your organizational status, for-profit, not-for-profit, or um, public entity, um, we're a hospice community still, we're a hospice movement still, I think. Um, yeah. If you're talking about us in business terms, we're a hospice field or a hospice sector. Uh, but never a hospice industry.
0: So, I will, so always,
1: I will always editorialize like that in the newsletter. I don't have any shame um, in criticizing even subscribers, and have particular joy in criticizing those providers that are not subscribers that refer to the hospital hospice industry. Um, so I think you know that is still an issue, and and um, uh, I think folks. Don't uh, both for profits and not for profits do just a lousy job of communicating about it.
0: Um, yeah. Well, I've not- heard you quoted on that before, but I just heard you in a whole different way. I actually understand better the point that you're making, and you would smile at this. I just reread uh, Sandal Stoddard's The Hospice Story just a couple weekends ago. And that book is so, it's probably the closest thing to a hospice history book. And what you're describing is that kind of the pioneers the Kubler-Rosses and um, the folks at Connecticut and Marin, that's exactly what they were telling us. And they went and studied in England that this is other than the rest and healthcare and be careful kind of fighting for your place at the table, because this is a different type of model of care.
1: Right. Right. And we've always been pioneers. Um, And you know, what I tell my clients is if they're in a nasty fight with all my clients are either, not-for-profit providers or vendors that work predominantly or exclusively with not-for-profit providers. And I always tell them it's not about the for-profit, not-for-profit status, it's about mission fulfillment. Yep. Uh, and that's, that's really good. Because cons- the lay consumer doesn't understand the difference between a for-profit, not-for-profit yep. um, provider, and some people think, act- I remember when Odyssey was first getting started, uh, in one of their Texas uh, or Arizona, Texas or Arizona markets, um, uh, one of their one of the not-for-profit providers they competed against was you know making a big deal about the for-profit status, and there was a letter to the editor in the newspaper. You know what? I prefer a for-profit provider because they've got to satisfy their shareholders, and if they don't, uh, they'll go bankrupt and go out of business. So I want yeah. to see a for-profit. So you never know how the consumers are going to read that. So talk about mission. Um, and I was always amazed when I worked at VITAS that um, large legacy not-for-profit providers that had great stories to tell about how they were uh, born of the community and nurtured by the community and invested in by the community, um, all they wanted to talk about was you know how nasty for-profits are. Instead of telling their story, yeah, would draw the contrast.
0: Um, no, well, Mark. We're going to go ahead and wrap up. But first of all, I want to thank you for the service to our movement, to our sector. Um, and now I even understand better. I knew it being a consumer of the hospice news today. If folks want to get access to it, more, are they have more information? Where can they find out about getting uh, hospice we, news today? I
1: don't have a website for it, so they should just email me uh, at um, mbcohen, m is a mark, b is a boy, Cohen, C O H E N, at Cohen Fife Communicate com dot mcom
0: and, and we're going to actually put that up as well on the actual podcast. Well, Mark, thank you. Thank you for the service. And I've got a couple ideas how we could continue to partner together. And I'll share that with you after the show. Um, Mark is so good. I couldn't come up with one quote. So I think there are actually two quotes that are good booking for our podcast today. First, as he shared with me, this one came from his economics, I guess, professor teacher, Economics is the science of the allocation of scarce resources amongst competing choices. That's pretty profound when I think about what you do, Mark. And then the second one from Bob Dylan, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Thanks for listening to TCN Talks.